guys, what's going on? This is another episode of Off The Record Podcast, where we are interviewing great founders about their journey of raising money, bootstrapping, and building their unicorns. And today, we have a great guest. And um, Swishka Swami is a young Canadian version of Gary Vee. That's at least how I see you. Uh, he has a passion for public speaking, giving three TED Talks that you can see on YouTube. He's on the list of Canada's top 20 under 20. He was a UN youth ambassador, consultant for Fortune 500 companies like Western Union, Google, American Express. And right now, Swish is the CEO of an audience engagement platform, TrueFund, that helps build brands, generate, segment, and activate first-party data. And they recently have raised $4.1 million including some of the NBA players and venture firms. Swish, so nice to have you on the show. Welcome. Appreciate you having me and uh, the kind intro. So you just, uh, I can't just skip that. You recently get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How was the whole thing for you, the whole process? It was, uh, it was good, relieving, finally. You know, I've, uh, I've been wanting one, obviously, for, for some months now. Uh, and I feel like after a year and a half of just social distancing, like, I kid you not, it's been a year and a half of social distancing. I think I've probably met maybe three or four people in the last year and a half outside of my mother. And those were just for walks, you know, and not even like properly hanging out with them. Um, it finally feels like there is a path forward. There is like a kind of light at the end of the tunnel. So I'm feeling optimistic. But, you know, I think it's it's been a pretty crazy journey, both personally and also professionally, like managing a business throughout COVID um, and essentially taking on the emotions and the, you know, volatility of emotions, if you will, um, of, you know, 33 people now is uh, is quite a lot, uh, and especially on a daily basis, especially when people are affected by COVID. Um, it can definitely be tolling. When I met you a couple of years ago, I was pretty blown away by how incredibly social you are. You were like responding to 50 messages a second and talking to a ton of people at the same time. How was it for you to adapt? How did you adapt to that change when suddenly it was all shut off? Because you are like you're like this hyper social guy and then suddenly mm-hmm. it's like gone. Yeah, I mean, I tried to be hyper social in other ways. Like I, I really tried to like, you know, Initially, I was a big fan of the Zoom call, so being a part of like virtual events, speaking at virtual events, setting up my own, just checking in with friends wherever I could. That's what I mainly did for like the first three to five months uh, of lockdown. Um, and then also, to be fair, like there was so much work on the professional side that I wasn't affected too much initially because we just had to adapt our whole business pretty much to COVID. Um, and throughout COVID, we actually grew really quickly because, you know, as people weren't able to go to retailers uh, in person or restaurants in person, a lot of these companies were transitioning online and looking to invest in tools that allowed them to find their digital communities. So tools like ours became very popular as a mechanism to be able to identify your top fans and then retarget them and be able to reach out mm-hmm. to them. So. We actually experienced a pretty incredible surge of business that came our way. Um, And that also was a direct kind of result of us pivoting our business, not just to focus on enterprise, but also to focus on small businesses and launching an affordable pricing plan in April, launching a free plan in May of last year, um, and then starting to kind of grow the company that way. So there was a lot you know there was a lot going on i remember we were throwing a monthly virtual event for small business owners from april all the way to july Mm. um and then past that we got into our second acquisition talks and you know acquired this company player gg out of Kelowna. and then after that we raised our our seed round and then right now you know we're focused on putting out a consolidated 
you know, B2B product in a month while also working on a consumer product that we haven't told too many people about. And we're hoping to be able to get that out by September. So I just feel like given the fact that on the professional side, there's been like one milestone to another milestone to another milestone, I maybe haven't felt it as much as, as certain other people, but it doesn't mean obviously that I'm, I'm not, you know, sometimes thinking like what the hell is going on? And that, that thought definitely does come up at least three or four times a week. Um, especially when you're working late and you're looking outside and you're like, damn, this world has changed <laughs> so much, especially yeah. when you go to up North, uh, here in Ontario. And then if you happen to see like a Tim's Tim Hortons, the people actually like walking in and eating with no masks, it's a strange scene. You're like, what yeah. is that? Yeah. And I've also, I've encountered, you know, even when I go for my walks, like when you walk in front of like, it's like when you walk in and you see someone coming you know, to you. Um, at least my gut reaction is just to move aside. Uh, and I'm just like a little bit afraid of like, okay, fine. Like when things do go back to normal two, three years, four years from now, like, are we still going to be apprehensive about each other? Like, you know, are, are kids growing up? Like I feel terrible for kids growing up that, you know, aren't able to go to school or for the last year and a half might not be able to see their friends. Um, because that does affect you mentally over time. It does affect you mentally. It definitely also affects your personality, but it affects your energy and it affects how you go about probably, you know, treating others down the road. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of kind of mental health consequences that come from this that are also, in my opinion, haven't been fully realized yet. Long-term hundred percent, yep. because it's not going to go away. It's the same as the stock market, which is like, it these these like stimulus nudges they just won't disappear over yep. they will show up they will yep. and, and yep. it's the same for people like with the mental health i think uh yeah it, it's easy to see like in the uk i think there was this article that uh everybody went into this club three thousand people everybody got like negative COVID tests and everybody was like oh it's the same right it's the same as it was before it is not the same you can't put mm -hmm. together you can't put people into uh, basically into this confinement for a year plus and expect that it's not it's going to be the same we're so social by our nature that it will eventually it, it's it's not like all smiles and instagram but it's not really how it is especially after you come back yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think at the end of the day, if anything, though, I hope the one kind of positive lesson from COVID is that the question, how are you doing, is something we need to ask our friends and family more often. Um, so checking in with people, I think, might have been the one great thing that came out of this pandemic, along with, I think, people actually being more hygienic now more than ever, like, you know, actually washing their hands properly, which a lot of people did not do. I like know friends that like did not wash their hands properly that are now like obsessed about sanitizing and washing their hands. So, you know, those are the only two things I can really think that that maybe have been great personal things that have come out from from the pandemic. It's uh, it was also interesting uh, to me where there was all these articles or posts uh, people were posting that said, oh, just spend the time, take this opportunity to focus on something you wanted to do because it's like quiet. You won't have that chance in the future. And I'm like, yes, but then you're like underestimating the importance of the mental health and just being in your zone. Like when you are in your zone and when you're really having the right environment around you, it makes a big difference. You don't need 10 hours. You could spend four hours, but they are like much more productive. So I think there's also a little bit of disregard with, with regards to mental health. Like, yeah, of yeah. course you have all this time, but then it's like, okay, yeah, and I feel like it's also that sort of notion puts a lot of pressure on people, right? To like, just like, okay, all right, cool. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm going to launch a startup during COVID. And it's like, like, 
anything that was easier to do before the pandemic has only become harder to do now. Right. So it's worth noting that, like, yes, you might have a lot more free time because you're not going to dinners anymore. Um, but like for me, I actually found that my calendar got stacked up with even more calls because we had to do calls in order to keep alignment at the company versus previously we were just at an office and we were able to get alignment very quickly by running into people when they were working, by actually gauging how they're doing based on their body language when they come into work. Now, like, I don't know how my team is doing on a daily basis unless I check in with them, right? Unless I see them on Zoom. And even then it's hard to guess because I'm only seeing them for a fragment of the day. I don't know what the rest of the day looks like unless they tell me and they're honest and they're vulnerable with me. So it's, it's a challenge. It's a big challenge. And especially launching a business now is, uh, is definitely a challenge. For the listeners, uh, Swish, what TrueFun is, what do you do? Yeah, so we built a audience engagement platform. Um, right now, that, that platform is actually split up into two um, that will be consolidated by the end of the month. Um, the audience engagement platform at a high level helps brands generate, segment, and activate first and third party data. So first party data is data that you get directly from your customers or your, directly from your followers. That could be an email, it could be a phone number, it could be a mailing address, it's more personal information. And we're able to generate that data in a compliant manner that gives value back to the user that's sharing that data. And then in terms of third party data, that's data from platforms like Instagram and Twitter, which we allow you to come on, see it within our platform, visualize it, segment, filter it, and then analyze kind of your audience or for that matter, any audience in the world. It could also be your competitor's audience. So Nike can take a look at it, Adidas' top fans on Instagram, filter it, analyze it, and, and start you know building up a targeting campaign based on that. Very cool, very cool. How are you planning on, how you segment B2C, B2B? Like how, do you, how, how are you thinking about it? Because this is a, mm -hmm. quite, a, quite a difference in terms of it how they difference. operate. Yeah, I mean, typically, like, we've only been focused towards B2B. So far, like, the two products that I've mentioned are very focused on businesses. Um, so we have over 750 paying customers, out of which 95% are brands. Um, and some are really big brands, like the Netflixes and the NBAs, the NFL, the United Talent Agencies, Procter & Gamble's of the world. But from the consumer side, you know, what we're really excited about is going deeper into this principle of, can we improve brand engagement while respecting consumer privacy and even rewarding users? That last aspect around rewarding users is what we're really trying to fixate on. And I think what we've come up with is a, a pretty simple consumer play that could potentially lead to a lot better data for brands, but more importantly, a lot better respect for consumer privacy and kind of some of the demands that we've heard consumers ask for. You know, it was interesting because, uh, Apple announced uh, iOS 14.5 or for, for, yes 14.5 and then when they yep. when they removed the um, advertising identifier and there was this pop-up that would pretend like Facebook yep. would have and like would you like would you allow apps to track how could you possibly expect somebody to click on that thing for nothing and knowing what you know about Facebook and Zuckerberg like how is it possible yeah, I think that's where they, I mean, that's why they were shitting their pants candidly, right? Like their CFO went on air and said, well, we don't think a majority of people would click yes. And I'm like, no shit. Like, that's probably a good indication that what you're currently doing is wrong. Um, so yeah, I mean, great job on Apple to do that. But candidly speaking, like, I, I just feel like we're celebrating Apple, which is great. But like, 
asking for permission for someone's data or to track them should have been something we did like five years ago, especially post Cambridge Analytica, right? So I I feel like it's a little bit, you know, like we're a little bit behind the ball there. I think we're kind of now in phase two of the internet, phase one and just tracking mindlessly, phase two is asking for permission. And then phase three, which I'm hoping TrueFan will help usher or at least help influence is compensating users directly for their data. That's gonna be key. I was going to ask you, how are you planning on doing that? Like, for example, Brave Browser and a lot of other yep. uh, tools, they have um, basic attention token, which is kind of pulls yep. people into crypto. But that's one of the ways where you could be making 5 to $10 a month, literally by doing nothing. You have your Brave Browser, you browse, you, build, you have a built-in ad blocker, but then the ads you see on the home screen, which actually look yep. very nice, they, you get 5 bucks per month by just browsing like you normally do. Of course. I mean, yeah, that's definitely one model. Uh, and we've seen that model work, right? Like, you know, Brave Browser is great. Um, to be fair, though, Brave Browser has been around for like for five, six years. They've grown to about 20 million users. But like when it comes to the grand scheme of things, like the world is not using Brave, right? You know, Google no. Chrome is still the default, you know, browser of choice. Uh, kind of, I think, usage rates uh, hover between 65% to 70% worldwide. And then you have Safari, and then you have Firefox, and then you have even Opera and Samsung Edge now that have popped up. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, Brave is a very, very small browser. Um, and their entire business model relies obviously still on building an ads network, right? Their entire model is we'll just replace the current ads network. We will build our own ads that are more tailored to you because you will give us your interest. And then we are going to give you 80 cents off every dollar that we get from advertising. And that goes back to users. That's the entire business model for Brave. There's also a company recently that went on Dragon's Den called Generate out of the UK that's similar to them, but doesn't reward users with crypto, but rewards them with tangible rewards. For us, I mean, we view the entire browsing experience and we think that as a company, we don't need to change it. We're not out here trying to change your browsing experience and make it adless, right? You can already go and download an ad blocker if you want to. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel there. What we do want to do, though, is allow you to be compensated for your current browsing experience, similar to what an Air Miles would have done or similar to what Drop in Honey did for purchasing data. We want to be able to do for browsing data. So we think that what consumers can do is come into a trade-off with us. They can give us their browsing history in exchange for full transparency that we will tell them exactly what we collect and allow them to manage that data to a certain extent while also compensating them directly for that data with points that they're able to then redeem for items, gift cards, discounts, put them in giveaways, et cetera. Right. So it's basically you have you opt in into, hey, we're going to share this data and we're going to share it in this places. So it's very transparent. And if you're okay mm-hmm. with it, this, these are the type of points you're going to get. So you're betting on basically the audience that is not as it's okay to share some of their information. Okay. And I think, you know, here's the thing, like the, the guys, maybe the contrarian hypothesis we have is that we think a majority of people would be okay. I just think like people inherently don't mind being tracked. I just think people mind being tracked when you don't tell them that you're tracking them or when you don't compensate them directly for it. Like we do so many things every single day that are a trade-off and they're a trade-off on our rights. And we're fine to a certain extent of giving up certain rights or limiting certain rights if it means being able to be aware of that happening and also being compensated directly for it. So I just think this is another trade-off that we need to allow consumers to make. And again, certain consumers might feel comfortable doing it. Certain consumers might not. That's totally fine. We just want to give that choice to people. How did you come up with an idea 
to build Trufan. You built a few businesses, and I want mm -hmm. to talk a little bit about your career journey, but before we dive yeah. into it, how did you, what was the idea, like how did it come up? Yeah, it actually came from a, a previous startup I was working at called Dunk. I was in New York City, and my roommate had built this really big Instagram account for basketball fans. Um, the main account was at Dunk on Instagram. It had about 2.2 million followers. And when I came on for about nine months, we started acquiring their Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter accounts. So we grew it to a, basically a modern-day media network, 21 accounts, 11 million followers. We had at Curry on Instagram. We had at Math on Instagram. We had at Movement, at Dunks with an S at the end, at the Hoop Films. We owned these you know, multiple accounts across these various platforms and started working with brands like Warner Music and Gatorade and 2K to promote their content on our channels because our channels had that 18 to 24-year-old urban demographic interest in sports. Um, and in the process of working with these brands, I realized that a lot of them worked with influencers candidly that had fake followers and fake engagement or worked with people that had never bought from them before and just didn't even care about their product. And I just thought there had to be a better form of influencer marketing, one that actually was, you know, maybe still like paid, but, you know, was a little bit more seamless and, and was a more natural fit, if you will. So we, we kind of went out to build this algorithm that hopefully could help any brand find who their top fans were, both influential fans and engaged fans, and allow them to directly reach out to them, work with them. Um, but that, again, was three years ago, right? Like, it, everything we're talking about now uh, is just an evolution of that, an iteration of that initial simple idea. That's what I thought. I thought you, because you had so many social media, I mean, you were super involved in social. I felt like mm -hmm. this idea probably came from something you were doing before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about, so your, your university, so you went to U of T, mm -hmm. uh, and, yep. um, you, you graduate. What do you do? After I did that? not, I did not you graduate. Did not. I, uh, I spent two years at the university of Toronto and then I eventually took a leave of absence, which eventually led to like just being dropped out. Um, so I haven't gone back ever since, but I was studying peace, conflict and justice studies at, uh, the Monk school of global affairs. And I was super excited because when I went to university, I thought I was going to be a lawyer. And then two years later, I'm like, mm, probably not right for me. So you know, if I went back to school, which I'm definitely open to, it's like I'm actually very pro-college as it is. But if I went back to school, I definitely not go back for my same major. But I might go back for something a little bit more creative, maybe like filmmaking or film direction or screenwriting or something like that. That's more like a passion project and just do that to be able to get some experience within it. You, you, so you dropped out and then what do you do? What do you, you started, you started a startup? Well, so initially I actually had a summer internship in New York, right? So after my second year, I went to New York and was working for a man named Trevor Booker. He played for the Brooklyn Nets at the time and had started this venture capital fund called JB Fitzgerald. They were a very, very small team when I joined them, three people. Um, and I came on as their first associate and worked with them over the summer. Um, and then post doing that is when I kind of joined Dunk as uh, Elliot's co-founder and became a roommate as well um, and just really started to grow Dunk with him. Spent about nine months doing that and then had the idea for TrueFan, uh, called up my friend Onik, who was at Stanford at the time. He was finishing his second year comp sign engineering and told him about the idea and he said he loved it. Uh, we built out the MVP. It popped off a little bit. And by popped off, I mean like we had two customers but enough validation for Onyx <laughs> to be able to drop out. Uh, and, you know, he decided to take a year off as well, which eventually led to him dropping out. But we, you know, moved the company to Vancouver, started out there. And then after we raised money, we moved to Toronto. 
if uh, I were to meet you during your dunk days, how would you yeah. intro yourself? How would you describe what you do? I'd be all over the place, I feel. I just think like maybe, and again, this is like uh, a result of youthful energy, which again, I still have. Like, I'm not saying I'm not young, but I mean, I just think at that age, if you were talking to me, I might have felt like more was better. You know, like being able to say that, hey, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm also speaking and I'm also like a social media person that loves posting content and I'm also writing a book and I'm also doing this and that and this and that. That's probably how I would have introduced myself versus now I'm, I'm very clear, like 99% of my week is true fan uh, and everything else, whether it's social media or speaking or doing podcasts or whatever it is, is a result of the work that I do at true fan. So the way I see it is that the better I do a job at true fan, the better all these other opportunities around me are uh, become. I looked at your profile before and, uh, you know, if you look at it, like you, you were doing so many different things. Book, mm -hmm. yeah. book writing, and then you were doing like you were like a LinkedIn, you, uh, youth, editor. LinkedIn youth panel, youth editor, yep. and then you were doing yeah. TEDx. And it's yeah. like, wow, that's a lot of things. But <laughs> then you made a shift, you made a shift yeah. to, to like more, hey, I'm going to focus on this one thing. Yeah. It's also because I think maybe this is just me, but like at, at the point where investors' money came in, at the point where like we started to hire people and their lives kind of became intertwined with TrueFan, I just feel like a, a very strong sense of like, maybe an obligation to just show up and be present and just be there for, for my team in the same way that candidly they're there for me every single day. So I, I think that that was maybe the big reason why I just started to realize like, okay, A, we have a massive opportunity here. Like this entire space is continuing to change every single day. And it has a number of big incumbents that are candidly, in my opinion, going through an innovator's dilemma, similar to what Blockbuster had with Netflix. I think a mm -hmm. bunch of companies like Apple and Google might go through that over the next few years, um, where they can't really foresee consumer appetite uh, very accurately on a grassroots level. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, the biggest reason why I really started to like focus in and, and become laser focused with TrueFan is mainly because of that kind of feeling of obligation that I had back to my team and back to the investors that have put their money into the company uh, and just making sure that we see this through and we make it as big of a success as it could be. How did you make uh, a change to say no to opportunities that come up? Because I, I'm yeah. pretty sure like you, like if we look at the number of opportunities you had before and the ones that mm -hmm. you have now, it's probably like, like this type of growth, yeah. but yeah. you probably yeah. turned down most of them. And yep. like, how was that? Like, how did you, what did you learn? because that's very hard it is hard it's really hard to say no to be fair it was weird because like for speaking for example like i'm represented by bureau of speaker spotlight and it's funny because when i said no i started to get offers that were doubling the initial offer you know like i actually started to see like the, the negotiation tactic at work where it's like you know budgets that i was like happy with initially and i would have said yes to i said no to now because the timing and it just resulted in a bigger budget. <laughs> it resulted in, in me potentially being paid more for just doing a talk. And I was like, all right, fine, maybe I can make this work. Um, so yeah, again, like it's not like I've said no to absolutely everything. Like I, I still like doing certain things. I just wrapped up a podcast with TechTO, for example. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still speaking a little bit wherever I can. Um, and I still obviously put out content on Instagram and, and LinkedIn as well. But it is just, again, worth noting that, like, I see those as luxuries. Like, I don't focus my day around them before I actually used to schedule time to do this stuff. Now it's more of, like, if I can fit it into my true fan schedule, I will. But kind of my core priority in my schedule is, you know, 9 to 5, it needs to be really booked off for my team 
for being able to like schedule calls with me if need be and then also me being able to do that with them and then also being able to just work like i actually realized that before a lot of what i did was like nine to five was calls and speaking and posting content and then like five to nine was working and that's a terrible way to live in my opinion um so yeah for, for me i think it was it just came down to like candidly emailing people and saying hey like now is not a right time can we do something potentially in june and like pushing things off a little bit so that like if i felt like maybe this month was going to be really important which candidly speaking i feel like the last eight months have all felt like that so like i've just constantly been pushing things off later and later and later um that's something i've just been okay to do and again like it also is worth noting that at a certain point, like you're just not going to be able to say yes to everything either, right? So it's like you just shouldn't feel any sense of regret for saying no to people, um, especially if you do it in a nice way and you do it in a way where hopefully down the road they come back to you and say, hey, it's now a better time. And then maybe it is. Why is it a bad idea to start with speaking gigs and social and then move <laughs> on to doing doing the most important it's, work? It's, it's not a bad idea in the sense of like, from a branding perspective, it can actually help. Like I've actually, I've, I've had a number of like, you know, Canadian CEOs probably wonder like, what the hell is this kid doing, right? Like in the last three or four years, like I see this guy all the time on LinkedIn, what the fuck is he doing? Like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, right? And I don't mind that. To be fair, I actually felt like a lot of the ways that we've gotten about, you know, reaching investors or hiring great people, or even initially, initially getting brands on board, was mainly through my my platform, mainly through my community on LinkedIn and how easy it was for me to reach people, get on calls with people and, and have people hear about TrueFan. So I don't think it's a problem. I just think again, like what it really comes down to, which I definitely had to learn the hard way is managing your time properly and just making sure that like on a weekly basis, you know, and this is something I do every Sunday, you put down your priorities and you make sure that you actually prioritize the first and second thing on your list. Because I, I felt like a lot of times I had my priorities, but then I was just prioritizing like number four, or number five, and not the top two things I had to get done that week. Um, so I just think writing out your priorities and, and kind of prioritizing your priorities, if you will, is something that's very important to do on a weekly basis and continuously checking in with those priorities is key. That is what I've heard from a lot of great CEOs and I've read in the books too, where what they say, and it's remarkably consistent, that's what I thought you meant and you just confirmed, is what you're saying is there are big rocks. Focus mm -hmm. on the big rocks, that actually is gonna move you towards where you're trying to go. And then mm -hmm. the little things, like your, I think Gary Vee talks about um, fries or he talks about steak and the side dish. Like, like it just yeah. side dishes for later. Like yeah. leave the dessert, yeah. do the steak, do the steak first. Steak might not be the, the most exciting thing at first, but then that's yeah. what's gonna take you. That's actually what will take you forward. It will. And I, I think actually even the process of identifying it is really crucial. Like a lot of times it might be, it's easier to say, right? Like just go after the big rock and you're like, oh, there's so many rocks here. Which one's the biggest? Uh, right. I just right. think the process of reflecting too is really helpful. So doing that, like for me, I do it every Sunday. I realize like, okay, what are the biggest things that I need to get done this week? And just the process of thinking about it from various people's perspectives, various department perspectives. Um, it has been very helpful for me to be able to like continuously check in with people, but also again, yeah, like you said, focus my time on things that actually are going to move the needle. And that's candidly the only way to stay happy as an entrepreneur. Like the only way to stay happy as an entrepreneur is to take solace in moving the needle slightly every single day. If you if you can go to bed being like you know push the ball forward, um, that is a great way to live because if you just are you're living for like that TechCrunch article 
you're going to be ha like unhappy for like five, six months, maybe even a year before another TechCrunch article comes out about you guys and raising money or whatever it is. And that's just not a good way to, to be an entrepreneur. So for me, the two things I've learned is celebrate the small wins and then try to stay as neutral as you can. Like the incredible highs, don't go too high on them. The incredible lows, don't go too low on them. Just stay neutral. Okay, so this is important. I wanted to talk to you about that. Social media slash building the brand for entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're early in your business. You're building your building your company. Time is stretched. We know 8 to 2 a.m., 8 p.m., 2 a.m., Gary Vee's model, yep. which is not a bad yep. model. I totally exactly understand what he's saying. But yep. how do you start... If when let's say you're one guy maybe you're two people you're a small team how do you start putting your effort into building a brand and what do you at least need to think about because there's so many yeah. different things i think well, I mean, number one is a lot of people before even starting a brand should think about what they actually are looking to achieve with it like what are you trying to convey and say right like if you're just trying to create a brand to just get followers you're probably going to fail um the people that in my opinion see an explosive growth in like followers and community is are you the, candidly the people that actually have something genuinely important to say whether that's around mental health or whether that's around entrepreneurship or whether that's around physical health or whatever it is you know find a niche initially find some topic that you're ultra passionate about that you feel like you have a unique advantage potentially of talking about and really start to hone your content around that through video through audio through like photos whatever it is text whatever it is um the second thing is also if you are looking for a really easy way to just start putting out content, interview people. Like I've actually found that interviewing people is a great way to network. Um, like if I want to interview with my potential customer, just start a podcast around that potential customer, right? If your potential customers are VP of marketing or marketing managers at big Fortune 500 companies, well, welcome to the marketing Fortune 500 podcast, everyone. And, uh, and just, you know, reach out to people on LinkedIn and reach out to them on Instagram because 99% of people, like I say, love talking about themselves. I am exhibit A. So like, it's just simple human nature when you reach out to someone that they're more likely to say yes to being interviewed than they're more likely to say yes to going on a coffee where you're likely going to just take time away from them and not provide them anything of value back. So for me, again, interviewing people has been great. And I actually feel like, again, interviewing people is a great way to also put out content, but also to network and potentially generate leads for your business. So it could actually right. be like a, you know, two stones, one bird type kind of uh, analogy, if you will, there. Um, and then the final thing to consider when building your brand is community is everything. So like, even if you're putting out content on a daily basis, that's great. But if you're not replying to people in the comments, especially on a platform like LinkedIn, you're just not going to grow. So take time out wherever you can, maybe before going to bed, right? Like the 10 minutes before going to bed, check LinkedIn, go through your last post and look at all the comments. And, you know, initially the good thing is you wouldn't have that many comments. So it shouldn't be too long for you to go through every single one and just acknowledge people like, you know, thank you for leaving this comment, give a question back, give a thought back, like their comment even. These are the small things that allow people to know that you're not just an avatar putting out content, but you actually are a human being on the other side that's interested in having some sort of conversation. I think one of the key things, and a hundred percent, I totally agree with with everything you said. One of the super important things is, you know, you put in a content, you have a great idea, but nobody cares. Like you don't have the audience, and it will take time to build. And one of the really mm -hmm. great ways to do it is to be a part of the conversation. Jump into the community that already exists. Start sharing your thoughts. Start doing back and forth forum type thing or Twitter. And how do you like? 
do you like allocate 30 minutes a day and say, Hey, I picked LinkedIn, go through, you know, find people that look cool, that post the content that, that, that you're into, and then go like comment and say something. And, and that way you beyond the fact that you're posting. And that way, at least you're like, Hey, actually, you know, people recognize that I exist, they follow me back in a real way. And then slowly you start growing. Is that, is that how you'd approach it? That's cool. I mean, I don't, I don't mind that approach whatsoever. I actually find that if you leave a great comment on someone else's post, it's a great way to build up your brand because great comments, in my opinion, especially in a platform like LinkedIn are underrated. Like most of the comments on LinkedIn are just like fire emojis or people putting up their fucking hands or whatever. And it's, it's, it's not like anything of quality really. Like it's not to demean it. It's just to say that like, it's not insightful, right? Like it's just more reactionary. Um, so I think leaving like an actual insightful comment that like goes deeper into what the initial author was talking about could be a great way to get their attention, but also more importantly to, to get a couple of likes, to get a couple of comments and to be able to even start getting people to check out your profile. But again, like it's, it's very much not an overnight thing. You know, like I've been posting content now for six years on LinkedIn ever since I was, you know, a first year college student. And I've grown out to about, what, 130,000 followers, which could be seen as good, but also could be seen as like, well, that's very slow when you take a look at the grand scheme of six years and what some maybe other creators have been able to experience on platforms like YouTube or Instagram or whatever. Um, but for me, I'm, I, I, you know, everything I've done hasn't been to get famous necessarily, but it's more to like convey real thoughts, especially now more than ever about building a business during a pandemic managing people, spotlighting issues I care a lot about, like mental health, like racial discrimination and inequality. Like these are things that I like talking about on LinkedIn. I'm not afraid now to just put out a post and see what happens. Like I, I, I generally post only when I feel like it. I don't, you know, back in the day, I remember I used to want to like post every single day. Now I just don't care. You know, like I, I might post twice a week. I might post seven times a week. You know, it's entirely up to me. Um, but that's the cool thing. Also, I think I'm reaching a certain point with your community, I think, is that you know, when you reach a certain point where you've engaged with your community, you've gotten on five minute calls with them, you've met them at meetups, um, you basically create ambassadors, if you will. And ambassadors are, are people that don't leave your back very easily. So you can kind of be flexible in your posting, be flexible even in what you talk about, and, and you'll still hopefully get support from those, you know, ambassadors and those early people that supported you. If we go back, 100% agree. Actually, great points. If you, if we go back to let's say founder, they're they're starting out pretty early. What are some of the other ways they need to think about poor building community? So they are putting out their content. Great. They are engaging here and there with some other people. They're liking that. They're responding. Is there anything else they should be considering to yeah. start slowly growing the business? Not overnight, of course, but over time. Yeah, I mean, I always break it down kind of in a, in a couple of C's, right? So you have content is king, that's number one, right? Like just continue to iterate on your content, right? If photos aren't working, switch to video. If videos aren't working, just do text. If those three aren't working, go to TikTok, <laughs> go to Clubhouse, check out new formats that you think could resonate with your audience and check them out at least and try them out and see what works. Um, once you feel that initial moment of like, oh, there's a lift off here. And I think a lot of people experience with, with LinkedIn, right? Like in their first couple of months, maybe one post will hit like 10,000 views and you're going to be like, holy shit, this is working. Double down on that, right? Analyze why did that potentially go viral? What were maybe some of the themes or, or potentially some of the topics or the way that I wrote this post that people really resonated with and try to emulate and replicate that. Past content, there is community, like you mentioned, you know, and like I mentioned, engage with people in the comments, 
try as much as possible, especially in your early days, if you can, to get on phone calls with people. It's just a great way for them to be able to be like, oh, I know who Swish is. Like, in the next time they see your post, they'll be like, Swish and I actually got on a call. Like, he understands what I do. I understand what he does. And it's a great way to build a connection with people that, generally speaking, might be more enticed now to leave a comment on your post because they've actually talked to you and they know who you are. And then number three, this collaboration. So start looking around, right, and thinking, who else is posting? on LinkedIn that might be in Vancouver or might be in Winnipeg or might be in Toronto. And that's something I did, right? Like mm-hmm. five years ago, we launched a campaign called the Let's Get Honest campaign. It was a hashtag where you'd share a video um, that was talking about your vulnerabilities in the workplace and you'd include the hashtag Let's Get Honest and you'd nominate three people. I started that campaign with Aaron Orendorf, who at the time had maybe 15,000 followers, Michaela Alexis, who at the time had maybe 80,000 followers and Josh Fector. And, and kind of as the four of us, we were the ones that put out our videos first, nominated people, and it led to over 26 million views in total for the entire campaign and over a thousand posts being made with that hashtag, let's get honest. So these are the things that you can do to collaborate with other people. It doesn't necessarily only have to be like interview them or write an article with them. Those are small things that you can definitely do, but think outside the box, maybe more creatively of what you can do to really start a wave of some kind. Um, and then the final thing to keep in mind is consistency. Like, again, a lot of people will drop off um, after a week or two of posting and not seeing results. And candidly, I do believe that this is actually just a, a lesson in life I've learned is the people that tend to win are the people that really just stick at it. They stick at it for a long period of time because in that process of doing that, you are more likely to learn what works and what doesn't work. And that's the true beauty of success, in my opinion, is, is being able to get to that point where you understand this is what works and this is what doesn't work. And, and it takes a long time to figure that out and to clearly figure that out, um, especially on social media, which is so quickly, rapidly changing. Um, but again, I would stick with it, right? Consistently post two, three times a week. You don't have to post every single day, but be diligent. Put it in your schedule and don't forget about it and actually do it. Yeah, you're not gonna get uh, you're not gonna get the steps from the framework. Like people are like, oh my god, the ten steps. Just because there's so many variables, and you probably are not that great, anyways. Yeah, like, it takes a long, it takes a long time. Yeah. Like it's, it it's really easy, to, and it's so easy to see uh, where somebody posted on social for like they post like in a, once uh, every six months. You see that post, it stands out, not yeah. in a good way. It no, does. Not, it's not like, in a good way at all. It's like, hello guys, I'm here, I'm alive, and yeah. <laughs> It doesn't, it doesn't feel good. But I mean, to be fair, though, it's also because maybe it's like, you know, and this is like coming from a person that felt this way three or four years ago. But I feel like we also live in a time where people are looking at career paths like speaking uh, and career paths like posting content on social media and thinking that they are entitled to doing that just for being an entrepreneur. Um, like, oh, it's like I'm an entrepreneur. I can be a speaker. And And what I think people don't realize is like, Before I ever spoke on public stages, I was debating for seven years of my life, grade seven all the way up to first year of college. You know, before I was posting content on social media, I was literally running a like big Instagram network with Dunk, right? And learning a little bit about what went into that. Obviously, I was focused more on the business side and not on the creative side, but kind of getting a under the hood to look into one of the biggest Instagram accounts for basketball at the time was really crucial to me understanding what to do for my own personal brand. So this stuff takes time. It's not stuff that like you can just go on Instagram and feel like within a week you're going to hit a million followers or within a week you're going to hit 100,000 views on a post. It just does not happen that way normally. So take time to just realize that 
there are literally people in the world that social media or speaking is their full-time career and even they're still figuring shit out so respect kind of the art form in my opinion for what it is and don't just feel like you're entitled to be a speaker because you're an entrepreneur you know this is this is going to resonate with you especially because you you are into nba uh, i was listening to one of the talks of kobe bryant uh and he said something that always sticks with me i keep keep like keep kind of bringing uh, bring, bringing back to my head he said look the one of the reasons why i'm always going to be a better basketball player than you is because you just can't spend that much time because you have mm -hmm. other things and yep. i spent yep. on basketball all my time everything this is my life and you have to yep. do other stuff and i'm yep. like it's so true, like, because the more hours you spend, the better you get. It's all the nuances, the little details you get under the hood, like you said, and like, and then you, you take off. And yep. it's such an important thing because like the moment you say yes to other things, you kind of like splitting your time, you're not, not getting deep and that results. And you're probably looking in like three months timeline instead of 10 years. And it's like, there you go. So it was, yep. it was a really profound comment to echo in what you just said. And I think the reason why people don't necessarily do this, and again, this is also speaking from experience as someone that maybe wasn't ultra laser focused three, four years ago. The reason I think people don't do that is because they're looking to hedge their bets, essentially, right? They're looking to do a number of things and then hope that one of them pops off and will give them an indication of where they need to go because they don't know where to specifically focus their time. They're just hoping if they do multiple things, one of them will pop off and they'll know exactly where to go. And they're trying to hedge their bets so that like they don't just only focus on one thing that eventually doesn't work. I think we need to, as a society personally, need to be more appreciative people that really are ultra focused and laser focused on one thing, even if that one thing doesn't work. Like, I, I just think, especially with entrepreneurship, like people that have devoted and sacrificed their entire life and all the other opportunities that might have come their way for a business, even if that business doesn't work, there's a number of amazing things that can come from it. Like, even with me, like, I, I think TrueFan is a successful company so far, but are we Uber successful? Are we Airbnb successful? Are we Twitter successful? Absolutely not, right? And that is obviously still the goal. It's what we're working towards, but... Even in the short duration of building TrueFan for about 3.5, four years now, I have grown so much personally and professionally. Like four years ago, Swish as a manager would have just been, you know, candidly terrible. Like just wouldn't have been the type of person that you would want it to work for. You know, and, and now I, I look at myself and it's still, you know, it's still something I'm improving on. But like I'm more empathetic. I'm more understanding of where people are coming from. I acknowledge my mistakes a lot quicker. And I've, I've tried personally to check in with people a lot more regularly, too, to make sure that I'm fostering a real connection with people that work with me. And then on the personal side, like time management, being focused, these are the types of things I learned in the last three or four years of building TrueFan. And I learned it because of the company, right? The company forced me to learn all this stuff quickly and to figure things out quickly. And so... If you want to go through a rapid level of growth from a professional and personal side, entrepreneurship is for you. If you're coming in just to entrepreneurship for the money, you're probably going to miss out on the key value of, of being an entrepreneur, which is everything else that you learn, which allows you to make money whenever you want in the future. Like these are the interpersonal skills that I genuinely think will separate a lot of people from the money makers from the people that might not be the money makers. You know, there's this, uh, it might be a meme or a joke where they say, if you're trying to, to learn how to swim, the shark is the best trainer. Yeah, Still <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is, right? Like, you'll just, you'll swim twice as quick, probably, and actually figure out how to, how to, 
properly stay alive. <laughs> it's, now uh, I've got the all this time. I, <laughs> my, my schedule was so busy. Now I've got all this time. Now, now I can. Now, now I'm available. <laughs> yeah, honestly, that's why. Like for me, I don't know why, but I work a lot better under pressure. Like when I'm under pressure, um, you know, I, I find that I I just prioritize my time so well because I realize like I don't have that much time. I have to do the most that I can do with this little amount of time. And kind of my mind, I guess, goes in a hyperdrive and I figure out like, okay, what's the creative way of like optimizing this, right? Like, okay, I'm going to spend five hours on these two things. These are the most important things. Or maybe I'm actually going to do the easiest thing first. So I feel like I'm in a rhythm and then I'm going to go and knock out the other things, right? Like that's the type of stuff that I'm able to think about and I'm forced to think about under pressure, which again, a lot of people listening have probably related to that in terms of procrastinating and working under, under the clock. It's uh, one of those things where Tim Ferriss has this great question. If I only had two hours per week, what would I do? Mm. Really good one to ask. You probably have more yeah. time, but at least think about it. Like, what is really this? Like, what are you trying to do? Yeah. Two hours. Another one that I like is, and I don't know who said this one. It's just like, if you had all the resources in the world, what would you build? Right. And, and like a lot of entrepreneurs actually don't build things that they genuinely want to build. And like, I know it's a little bit weird saying that, but like a lot of them get into an industry maybe because it's like the right thing to do or because they're just like fantasized by the potential of making a lot of money within that space. But then when you ask them that question, like their ideas are totally different. And I'm just like, so why aren't you doing that? Right? Like, why aren't you doing the idea that came first in mind when I told you that you had unlimited resources and you can build anything. Right. And I understand like, yes, resources are finite. There are certain ideas that might be impractical. But, you know, working around that idea still is something that I think people could do, even on a small scale. You don't have to build Airbnb in within one day. Why do people do that? Because I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs who I've personally seen, oh, I really like that, but I'm building this because this is faster, quicker, safer or whatever, like multiple times. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like your perspective. I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe just financial like motivations um, do play a big part of what people choose to spend their time on and what they choose to build. Um, I, I also know entrepreneurs that build specific companies because they're, they're companies that can be venture backed and they like want to work with VCs. So they build specific companies like an enterprise SaaS company when they like didn't even want to. Um, the worst is when, when someone takes a business idea and like puts the business model into like enterprise SaaS. And I'm just like, why? Like, you know, like this is a consumer play or like this is not even like related to enterprises. Why would they even want to do this? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a number of reasons to be fair. Like I'm also not the type of person that I like knocking people for like their motivations behind starting a business. I'm just very clear that like, I know that this kind of road is a very long journey that like if there's one thing you should definitely know off before starting a business is that you might be working at that idea for 10, 15, 20 years and you should be ready to do that. I just find it very hard to believe that financial motivations alone will keep you alive during that journey. Like I just don't think it will. Um, and I think, you know, financial motivations alone might be a great way to initially have like energy into an idea, but truly to sustain that energy, to really feel like you're doing something important to wake up every single day feeling motivated, like those sorts of things and those sort of ideas that we put into our head is very important. They only happen when you're kind of intrinsically motivated, when you have something that you wake up for, which for me, again, is my team right now and this broader idea that we have that we're, you know, we can picture it, we can see it in our head and we want to be able to get it done. 
I don't believe it either, actually. Swish, it was such a great conversation. I enjoyed it tremendously. I think our listeners will enjoy it so much because so many great takeaways. We touched on your career. We talked a little bit about building a brand. We talked about some of the takeaways of your transition to more of a manager and, uh, and CEO at the company with like ultra focus. A lot, a lot of great takeaways. Thank you so much for being here and, and sharing all that. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. We are proud.